Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to AFR Podcast. Uh, I am Captain Kevin Ferrando, one of the seven eights. I am met with uh, Chief Emily Jaramillo. And with us today is going to be from Albuquerque Police Department, Lieutenant Matt Dietzel. Uh, today we're going to be going over some of the topics, including how AFR responds with APD and APD's policy and procedures in regard to uh, many of the calls that we have uh, that tend to be a little bit more difficult to deal with, uh, particularly our site calls. With no further ado, I'd like to put M- Chief Jaramillo on and uh, maybe introduce yourself and just give us a little bit of what we're uh, kind of talking about today. I oversee emergency services, which uh, is all of our EMS response. And part of that has been us over the past three years really trying to establish better communication with Albuquerque Police Department. When Chief Ortiz and I took our positions, we felt like there was, it was like a black hole when we would try to send over a quality assurance issue that we were dealing with with um, Albuquerque Police. And they felt the same way about Albuquerque Fire we came to find. So part of that is we've established some really good relationships at Albuquerque Police Department, including with Lieutenant Dietzel, to work through uh, these issues because we are essentially responding to the same calls, especially if we want to stick to the site calls. Um, Both agencies, this is a good portion of our call volumes. So we started working with Lieutenant Dietzel several years ago and thought we would invite him here today to kind of educate our firefighters into why APD does what they do. So I'll hand it over to Lieutenant Dietzel so he can introduce himself and then uh, explain a little bit about his uh, CIU. Sure. So hello, everybody. Um, I'm Matt Dietzel. I run the crisis intervention section uh, for APD. And just to give it like a really brief introduction, you can kind of think of us as heart, but on the APD side. So really what our overall objective is, is to have better outcomes for police interactions with people suffering from mental illness and behavioral health issues. Um, So a lot of that is doing home visits. Uh, We have a follow-up unit who, let's say an officer is out with somebody in the field, they realize that it's behavioral health and, and want more kind of interaction later on. Like maybe this person call all the time. Maybe they're constantly tying up 911 um, with something that isn't really law enforcement related or isn't something that is a crime. It's not something that we can we can fix through, you know, jail. Uh, that, that call would come to us eventually and we would go out and we would try to connect that person to some kind of longer term treatment, whether it's a primary care doctor, a psychiatrist, some kind of uh, resource in the community, something like that. And so that's a big part of what my unit does. The other half uh, handles all the training, the mental health training for APD. So we have different kind of tiered responses in terms of what we respond to. Um, All the officers out there in the field wearing a uniform have been through the CIT class, so the crisis intervention training class. It's a 40-hour class, has scenarios. It's, It's a whole lot of stuff covering mental health, everything from what diagnosis looks like, what treatment looks like, uh, medications, all that stuff. Uh, And we also have the mobile crisis teams, which I think uh, FIRE has seen us with. Um, And that's a APD officer with a HopeWorks employed clinician right now. So that's a master's level clinician. They're kind of taking the higher level acuity calls when they come out. And so they're responding to things as they happen. Lieutenant Dietzel, that's one of the questions I think that we're really looking to address today is um, maybe you could give us more information on that MCT 
when are they called out? Who can call them out? Are they 24 seven? And could they do, or what, how could they aid AFR in our responses when we have, we don't have them on scene. Can we request them or anything like that? Sure. So mobile crisis team is kind of going through a period of transition right now. The HopeWorks contract is expiring January 11th. So it's going to kind of change the way the program looks. Basically what I think is going to happen is we're going to end up hiring either the clinicians directly in house or the county is. So there's some changes coming, but right now we technically have four teams and they usually work uh, like swing shift hours, like 10 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. It's, it's probably, there's probably one working. Uh, but right now we're just down to two teams. And there's been some problems finding clinicians wanting to do that work. So we're not at full strength right now in terms of the mobile crisis team. But generally, uh, if you guys are out with somebody who is, you know, reluctant to go to the hospital, giving you guys a problem in terms of you don't feel comfortable leaving, but at the same time, you don't quite have the authority to, to make them go to the hospital. That would be a great call to either call APD out in general or to request specifically the mobile crisis teams. And you guys can. Um, it's not will, really well known, uh, but fire can call mobile crisis team. In fact, uh, Bernalillo County occasionally will, their fire department, will occasionally call out their team. Um, dispatch probably will ask you some additional questions, and we I think we all need to be patient with dispatch in terms of, of how that goes. But if, if you make a clear demonstration of need and those teams are available, they should be coming out to help you guys too. Great. One of the things that comes up <clears throat> quite a bit for us is uh, certificates for evaluation. So can you ex explain those? Sure. So certificates for evaluations are issued by somebody in the mental health field. Usually it's a psychiatrist or a master's level clinician, but there's some other people who can issue them. And how that process looks is, you know, they have a patient. That patient probably comes to their office semi-regularly, and let's say for some reason they just stop showing up, or they get the text in the middle of the night uh, that that patient is suicidal, or that patient is not doing well, or has just stopped showing up to their appointments altogether. And at that point, um, especially if that person, that patient, is a threat to themselves or somebody else and is really kind of leading down that path, they don't necessarily have to hit that criteria yet. But their, the progression of their diagnosis seems to indicate that, you know, in the next two or three days, they may be threatening somebody else or they may be suicidal at that point. That clinician can go ahead and write a C for E. Um, and usually those come to APD. Usually we set up a call um, and the officer goes and picks up a physical copy of the C for E. We find that having that physical copy to show the person who's going to be transported, hey, we're not just here because we're bad guys. We're here because this this doctor, this clinician said, you need to be seen. Um, and these, this is all rooted in state statute. If anybody really is curious at looking it up, it's 43-110. It goes into depth in terms of what the criteria is, uh, how, it, how this process looks. But really, threat to self or other is like the big kind of, that'll get a C for E written pretty quickly. You know, this whole process is very law enforcement heavy. It's, it clearly states that law enforcement has to be kind of the transporting uh, mechanism on this. So it's one of those things that don't feel like you guys have to enforce them. But at the same time, if it comes down to it and the, the best way to get somebody to the hospital is an ambulance, don't be afraid to take them either. The officer will follow you to the hospital. And if they, if they do not follow you to the hospital, you need to you know, let, let your chain of command know because state statute requires us to give, as law enforcement officers, report to the, the hospital staff on these types of calls. And this includes C4Es. 
we have to go in there and talk about, hey, we saw this. They're threatening this way. Here's, here's why we're here. And we have to give some kind of reasoning as to why, you know, the government in the form of the police officer just took someone from their home to the hospital, probably against their will. So that's another big thing that's in that statute is officers have to follow you guys to the hospital if you do transport on these. And your transports, they're always to, well, normally probably always to psych emergency. Uh, very rarely, I'm assuming you guys would transport a patient to the ED first. Uh, does that happen? And if it does, is, would that be better suited for, you know, fire to respond or ambulance to transport? And I'm going to be very blunt here. So cops are terrified of having someone die in the back of our car. Like it is first day of the academy, you know, it's, hey, you're a cop. Good luck out there. Don't let somebody die in your car. Don't let somebody die in your car. Because when that does happen, it's a days-long investigation. That night, uh, the officer, let's say it happens at night, that officer is basically looked at as if, what did you do to lead to this person being dead in the back of your car? So that's, that's kind of getting into all the mentality of the police is we are just terrified of that happening. It, it causes all kinds of issues between our departments because you know, guys don't understand why we're so freaked out. But really, it's that. It's that alone. Um, so if there is a medical complaint and they do need to go to the ED before they go to the psych, it's always best if they can go in an ambulance just for patient care, but also for the psyche of APD in terms of how terrified we are of having that in-custody death. Because it is a, it's never happened to me, but I've, I know officers who has had that happen to them. And it's not a pleasant experience, not so much in the department saying you did something wrong, but you can't help but feel that if you had done something differently, that person might not be dead. They might still be alive. Things would have gone differently. The medical training would have been there to keep them going long enough to at least get to the hospital. Um, and so that's kind of the root of all of the checking people out and clearing and those, those calls that seem unnecessary to you guys just because we're so afraid of that in-custody death. Like we're terrified of it. Right. I, I completely see that side of it. You know, not very often do we go to see the CE, you know, certificate evaluations first. Uh, we're usually uh, after PD's already there. And I think that there's a medical component. I really don't see any issue with any of our providers, you know, initiating that transport or finding reason to transport. It's when we are the first ones on scene to an odd CE where maybe it's not even, it doesn't look right. It wasn't signed by a judge. It was something issued by some provider somewhere. It's where we kind of get this weird gray area. And some of our providers, I think, have kind of gone, well, this isn't a certificate evaluation is for PD. And then we kind of come back. And if it doesn't look like right paperwork, which I know it sounds weird. You think that all this should be pretty standardized, but we do get some weird requests from, you know, sometimes the rehab facilities, the, the uh, assisted livings. And then it kind of becomes this, is it us? Is it PD? And that's where I think there's a little bit of, misunderstandings and the way that i the way that i look at it is the c with the c4e they should be on scene first so if paperwork looks off or it's a facility saying a forced transport um and there's no consent there then i, I and correct me if i'm wrong then i think we should contact apd to come out or find out if there is actually a c4e and maybe they're not there yet or something like that for sure. And I would just blanket statement this across the board and say, if you guys run into a C4E and we're not there, go ahead and call us. Um, so we have a step-by-step -step process in terms of how we treat these. So we're also afraid of this nightmare scenario of 
somebody gets a hold of a C4E form for their buddy and then writes up that they're crazy and let's transport them to the hospital is like a, a doxing situation or a swatting situation. It's never happened, but we do have things built into the policy to make sure that you, you know, the officer calls a provider and goes, hey, is this legitimate? And is there anything I need to know? Um, and so that's, we kind of take care of that for you guys. So don't feel like you need to take C4Es by yourself ever. Um, always go ahead and just call APD and have us come take a look at it. And it's important to note too, these forms are not standardized by the state. Uh, last legislative session, my unit really tried to get the state to accept a standardized C4E form for everybody to use in the state, um, and it gained zero traction. So you will, you might get literally C4Es written on napkins. I've not seen it, but I've heard of it. Um, so that's it's good to be skeptical of these. I had an unusual call a couple months ago. It was, um, it was a C4E from a clinic uh, up north, and I think it was a mid-level provider put this order out, PD from the small jurisdiction up north, transported not to psych emergency, but to one of the offsite private mental health facilities here in town. And this person definitely was checking boxes for medical complaints. Um, vitals were not great. There was a lot of things that were just weird. And the CE did not look quite right either. So the facility did the right thing and refused care or refused the patient. They tried to do a direct transport from the you know, ambulance AS to do a direct transport. AS said no. Needless to say, there was lots of agencies involved. But at the end of the day, the patient did want to go to the hospital. So it was that that resolved everything immediately when they asked, well, do you want to go? Because, you know, your, your vitals are out of whack. There's certain medical components here. And the patient said, sure. So it made it very easy just to be an ambulance transport. But there was lots of phone calls and lots of weird just jurisdictional um, things going on there that no one knew what was happening. Uh, part of it was, I think it was just a smaller clinic and the mid-level just didn't really know where to send that person. And so that's kind of where it was at. But ideally, these are great if the patient wants to just go to the hospital. That makes it very, very easy. And that was the, the point that I thought of uh, while Lieutenant Dietzel was talking also is is consent from the patient. And this is where we do have on-scene issues with APD when there's a certificate for evaluation, which means that they, by statute, can force transport even against the consent of the patient, where on the EMS side, if their patient is alert-oriented and they are not consenting to transport, we cannot force them to go in. And so these seem to be the ones that quite often come our way for quality assurance. And if there's no medical issues, if they've, you know, if they refuse to let us touch them, to assess them, those are the ones that can be very complex. And, you know, I think from my perspective, I just encourage our firefighters to work with APD on these and not kind of get uh, start butting heads with APD. Sometimes there's a disconnect between our understanding of each other's policies that make it more complicated. Uh, this is where, you know, calling 7-8 for some guidance or calling the consortium. Um, at the end of the day, we're just trying to do what's best for the patient. It does, there is another added layer of complication to that when the patient does have obvious injuries or there is some associated medical complaint with it that I think it is also important for our firefighters to remember that APD can't transport, you know, if somebody has a broken leg and they have a certificate for evaluation, there's issues with APD transporting 
people with serious medical conditions or injuries in the back of their car. And I don't know if you want to touch on that. Yeah, if I could just talk about, uh, so C4Es are like this weird thing that law enforcement's very educated on, but medical providers are not. And so you'll occasionally get, like we had one just recently that said, person drives drunk. And so the officer gets that C4E and that's literally all it says is person drives drunk. And so they call the provider and they're like, just because they drive drunk doesn't mean we can just snatch them up and take them to the hospital. This sounds like a crime. And when they called the provider, the provider said, well, this person drinks a whole bunch of vodka, gets on I-25 and drives the wrong way in traffic. That is completely different than drives drunk. Um, So the intent there was to kill themselves in a very graphic and and possibly endangering the public way. Um, And so that that conversation, that that call that we had completely changed the outcome and how we viewed that C4E. Um, And one thing I would just like really to touch on is that disconnect between APD and AFR in terms of on-scene responsibilities. So cops are used to having this like big role. Like we can, we have all these powers we can temporarily suspend someone's civil rights and take them to jail. Fire doesn't have that ability. So for the firefighters out there, I would really suggest when these things come up, talk about the difference in role. Because as soon as an officer hears that, that you guys don't have the authority to just grab somebody, snatch them up and throw them in an ambulance, that's going to hit home and I think it's going to stop a lot of it. We have the authority to do things like that. But most professions don't. And sometimes we get so insular as police officers that we forget that. Yeah, and that's um, not so much with the C-freeze, but uh, those decisional patients who met, who need medical attention, um, who are maybe or maybe not in PD's custody, those are the ones that, that kind of really, you know, start generating these kind of, well, that's your patient, it's not our patient, he doesn't have, he doesn't want to go in by ambulance. However, you can see that he's got, you know, broken arm or whatever the case may be. Um, and a lot of our, re- our refusal criteria goes back to, are they decisional? And so if this person's A&O times four, they understand their decisions. They understand that, you know, what they're, that they could die from this potential injury if they're not treated and assessed by a physician at an ER. Um, it's when they refuse all that care that now it's kind of like we put it back, I think, on PD to say, well, they understand they're good. Whereas, like we discussed earlier, there's no way you're going to put that individual in the back of your, your squad car. Now, uh, Chief had talked about the consortium doc or the 7-8, but that's a call for your consortium doc. That's, that's, a, that's our get-out-of-jail kind of card where um, they make a really educated decision. They have the ability to take away those rights. Like you were saying, PD has the ability to take away someone's civil rights for a moment. Um, not that that's what we're doing, but we can make a better decision with a doctor and you know, kind of consult with them. They can force that transport, uh, get this person the medical attention that they need, even if they are denying they want it. At the end of the day with these, I think what we're really trying to get at is is everybody thinking critically on the scene about what's in the best interest of the patient or in the APD language of the subject, thinking it through, working together and discussing that between the agencies and then making a decision or helping the patient make a decision that's best in their best interest. Because some of these patients that are decisional, that have obvious injuries or other medical issues going on, we may have to slow that scene down a little bit and, you know, use some motivational interviewing techniques to try to convince them to make a good decision for themselves, which is to go to the hospital. 
um, and taking the extra time with those patients. And so I'm just trying to encourage everybody to work with our partners at APD or if Albuquerque Ambulance is on scene and it's okay to slow that scene down and try to get the patient to make that decision. If, if, if you see them, you know, with broken extremities and they're refusing to go in, you know, take a little bit of extra time with them um, because obviously they need medical attention. And even though they're decisional, they might need a little bit more conversation to make a good decision for themselves. Sometimes I just ask the patient why they don't want to go in. I mean, and they'll, they'll tell you, you know, whether it's cost or they don't like, they don't trust doctors or, you know, maybe there's something that you can reassure them with and, you know, just by asking that question. Yeah, exactly. And I do think it's important to talk a little bit about the psychology of police officers. Uh, we have this kind of ingrained thought process of we have to save everybody tonight, no matter what. Um, and so when you guys say that you can't transport someone, that like really rubs against the grain of every APD has to fix every problem. We have to fix everything. We have to fix it tonight. It's got to be fixed tonight. There's no other options. And so I think that's why I think talking about roles is so important on scene because it'll snap us out of it. Like in CIT, we teach the rescue trap, which is basically, and I'm sure some of the firefighters on this, on this podcast will have, have seen this where an officer just starts saying the same thing over and over again. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. Stop. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. It's because they're stuck in trying to get that across and they're not expanding out from it. And so it's just like the transport issue. Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, I would take this person because I'm worried about them or I have to fix this. Whereas that's something you guys are comfortable walking away from because you, that, that works. And that's what your, your authority level is. Whereas cops are always worried about getting sued. We're always terrified about litigation. And so that liability in the back of their mind, whether it's real or not, is always there. And so a lot of what we need to do as a police department is talk about your, your fear of getting sued needs to be there. You can probably tamp it down a few notches because right now it's way too high. And that's kind of where a lot of this sudden animosity that you guys probably experience on scene from APD comes from is, well, God, if, if we don't take care of this, we're all going to get sued. We're all going to be fired tomorrow. When in reality, that's... Probably not the case, but we're trained to be afraid of things like that. Which is a great segue into our next topic, which is um, APD requesting AFR to uh, check on, you know, quote unquote, to check out a patient because that's not our standard operating procedure. You know, we're there to assess and treat and transport if need be. I think you've ex- you kind of touched on it, Lieutenant Dietzel, but if you want to kind of walk us through when a person is in custody, let's say they are being arrested, whether or not the PD or the arresting officer wants to, you know, take them to jail that night or if they're going to, you know, issue a citation or whatever you guys do. Uh, just walk us through that thought process where a person is in custody, they're arrested, and they are, your arresting officer is requesting um, AFR to just assess a patient. And there's multiple things to look at this. There's the big elephant in the room, which is the in-custody death, the guy dead in the back of the police car. Um, That fear is always there. But sometimes it's as simple as uh, you're arresting someone who isn't the first time they've been in the back of a police car, and it's not the first time they've been arrested, and it's not the first time they've probably been in jail. Um, They will try to use a medical complaint that may not exist as an avenue to escape going to jail that day. Um, This happens a lot. And it's, it's frustrating for everybody. It's frustrating for you guys. It's frustrating for us because we're basically checking a box just because if we don't, it's the end of the world, liability, we're all going to get fired tomorrow. That, that thought process goes through your head. So police are trained 
that if somebody asks for a medical assist or asks for rescue, we pretty much have to make that call. And I know it's it probably just destroys your guys' time because it's just one of those things where you're coming out and they may be, at the time they make the request, they may have, you know, truly want that, but then you get there and you get told off spectacularly. I've seen that a lot. Um, and it's, you know, it's not because APD is trying to set you up to get told off too. It's because we, we pretty much have to. Um, and one of the things the settlement agreement with the Department of Justice really hit on is there's a paragraph in there that kind of talks about if we use force on someone, we need to have somebody somebody medical come check on them. Um, and I think that really came from this insinuation, true or not, I don't know. There's been no cases that I'm aware of, of APD using force on someone, them being hurt, and then us not calling rescue to come make sure that, that, that the level of pain and infliction or if, and hurt we inflicted upon them actually rose to a medical complaint. Um, and so I think that paragraph exists to make sure that APD's calling for medical assistance when they need it, especially after force. And so that's why, you know, I'm sure the, the fire crews out there just get frustrated that, yes, we use force on someone, but now we're bugging you to come take a look at them, like, almost like, hey, we use force on them, come look at this. That, that's not the, the point of it. It's, it's a settled agreement paragraph that basically says, if you use force on someone, if they even seem like they're injured, if they complain of it, um, if there's certain force threshold met, you have to call AFR to come take a look at them. And if I could just add one thing to that, um, because I did meet with, I think, internal affairs is who oversees the, like, the use of force and some of the stuff with the settling, settlement agreement. So I did meet with them um, because we had heard a rumor that, you know, APD was automatically calling us out to check people out without asking the subject if they needed medical attention. And so probably about a year and a half ago, I did meet with the, um, I believe, commander that oversees that unit. And it was the first time I actually got to see the settlement agreement. And it's very lengthy. I want to say like 300 pages or something like that. Uh, we identified the paragraph. And he did work with the monitor to try to adjust it to be a little bit more uh, reasonable where it, the, you know, it had to be like, obvious injury or the ability to find out if they were injured before calling us. So they did work on trying to make it a little bit more um, reasonable. And the other thing that I learned that day is the settlement agreement is not with APD. It's with the city of Albuquerque. And Albuquerque Fire obviously is a city department. And so the APD has to come in compliance with the settlement agreement. And so even though the, the settlement is with APD, it's really with the city, and so as another city department, we have the obligation to help fulfill those settlement agreement boxes to check, and so that's one of them, and I think, you know, the unfortunate part of that is use of force is pretty broad. I think from our perspective, we think of maybe tackling somebody or tasing um, or, you know, or more serious things, but it could also, I, my understanding is it could be pretty minor interactions with the subject that would also be use of force so you may not be going out to a guy that's tased it may have just been like kind of a forceful restraint into handcuffs or something like that yeah that's exactly right I, it could be as simple as we went to go handcuff them and i scratched them with my fingernails uh, that would be a time where i would probably need to call afr to come make sure that because now they're injured it's extremely minor and it's kind of si silly 
But that's the kind of scrutiny. Basically, when this goes through the, the chain of command for a, a use of force event, you know, it comes to the, the sergeant level, and they ask, why didn't you call rescue? And then it goes to the lieutenant rescue, or the lieutenant level. Why didn't you call rescue? The commander level, why didn't you call rescue? And all of a sudden, that officer, because they didn't call rescue, is probably looking at some kind of mandatory training to call rescue. So I know it sounds silly, but that's kind of the level of scrutiny that the force events have at APD right now. And I don't see that changing ever. Um, it was a major driving force in the settlement agreement coming into existence is the lack of a thorough investigation. And now we are extremely thorough to the point where if you scratch somebody on accident as you handcuff them and don't call rescue, you're going to wish you had by the end of it. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound like a, a very pleasant way to have to police. I don't think it's as big of a deal as you're, you know, for our providers really to get dispatched on these calls. I know that the wording, check the patient out or is, is never what we want to hear. But kind of what I've, I've told the guys in the field and our providers is uh, this is a kind of a black and white. We show up, we're going to do our differential diagnosis. We're going to assess the patient's, you know, ability to make their own decisions. And then we ask them that one question. Do you want to be seen at the hospital? Do you want to be transported by ambulance? A lot of times it's yes. A lot of times it's no. And so if it's a person who's in custody who has really no visible, you know, debilitating injuries, vitals are normal, everything looks good. If they still want to go to the hospital, then that's what we do. And so it's kind of an easy decision for us. So it's not that hard for us to make that transport decision because we, you know, we switch them over to the, the transport agency, they take them to the hospital and, and that's kind of ends on our, uh, ends our part of it. Now, some of the questions that I asked PD, I said, is this person going to be under arrest after they've been evaluated at the hospital? Cause sometimes I'll relay that to the patient who's going in and that kind of changes their mind. I'm like, you know, this, the offense that you are being arrested for is not going to get you out of going to jail tonight. I don't know if you want to go to the hospital. I'm not talking you out of it because that's never our part. But sometimes just having a conversation, even with the person in custody, can go a long ways. And, you know, I don't know how APD feels about sitting at the ER waiting for a patient to be evaluated by a physician before they're then discharged, then able to go to MDC. Um, it sounds like a lot of process for your officers. So Yeah, no, that's, that's a huge concern, especially on calls that, you know, we have to make an arrest and we have to do something. We will sit at the hospital for hours if we have to, but I really appreciate AFR always over the years being willing to kind of have that conversation because us saying, hey, if you go to the hospital, you're still going to jail, doesn't have the authority that you guys do because you're a, you know independent party, not invested in this, not the person making the arrest. So when you guys say things like that, it really helps us out in terms of this is not a get out of jail free card. Sometimes it can be. And there's been times when I've gone from arrest to a summons as a result. So a summons is basically you get paperwork in the mail saying, come to court on this date, but you don't go to jail on, on the night of the incident. And so sometimes it works, but there's certain charges where it doesn't matter how long we sit at the hospital. We will sit there multiple shifts if we have to, to take them in. That's good to know that, yeah, going to the hospital is not a get out of jail card. That's, yeah. and I think we've uh, gotten that through to the, everybody in the field. So uh, we know just to do our due diligence, patient assessment, and then kind of. And I think the, I think the thing, um, you know, that we're trying to help educate on the PD side, um, and I go and I talk to every CIT class and every cadet class at APD um, with, um, with a sergeant from Lieutenant Diesel's uh, unit, 
And one of the things that we try to encourage them is there's the use of force policy and then there's kind of the fear that everybody needs to be checked out. Um, there's the notorious Band-Aid incident that um, we got called out. <laughs> uh, we got called back to a scene because the officer was requesting a Band-Aid for somebody that they had and, you know, what we try to do when we work with, with APD and with the cadets and with the CAT classes is also kind of reasonable reasons to call us out to make, to, to perform some type of assessment. So first ask them, do they even need us? Like, don't just call us without, like, under the assumption that they need us. And then there are some things that can be handled by Anybody, like giving somebody a Band-Aid for a cut um, that doesn't appear to be a fracture or something like that. And so I think that's one, one thing that we're trying to work with officers on is, is, is that piece. And then also just having them, you know, understand that in, on the EMS side, uh, it's a little different where, you know, you have the right medically to make bad decisions for yourself. Um, that's why, you know, a doctor can't force you when you go into the doctor for any procedures. You have the right to your own medical decisions, and that's kind of the same thing for our patients. And so those are the two things that we really try to focus in on with the trainees to try to help encourage them not to call us out for a CYA on every issue that doesn't need to be there. And I think hopefully with time, and this is, again, aside from the use of force, this is just on other calls. Um, and then the third piece that we try to get them to also understand is that paramedics and EMTs cannot clear people. Legally, we cannot clear people. That's physicians that clear people. And so um, even though it feels like CYA, uh, it really isn't, especially if they're intoxicated um, or have other things going on, only physicians can do that. So those are things that we're trying to educate them to hopefully help them do a little more critical thinking before they request us out. And I've been out of the field for two years now, but I'm going to let you guys in like an APD secret. All of us at the time, two years ago when I left the field, everybody had a first aid kit in their car. So we can put band-aids on people. It's not a big deal. So, you know, you're right on that. Like we should be able to do that and not feel. I, I think it comes from a place of liability again. They see some civil rights attorney standing up in front of a judge saying, well, this officer, uh, how much medical training do you have? It's a Band-Aid. We can put Band-Aids on people. So I think that that thought process, that fear of being sued, goes to that kind of level where a Band-Aid is now open-heart surgery. So <laughs> it's, you know, just keep that in mind, the psychology of police officers. Yeah, that brings us to another uh, point. Um, so we often get the patient who is in cuffs, and they are cuffed behind their back, and they are requesting to go to the hospital by ambulance. And whether or not they have any kind of major medical complaint um our policy is that no one is going to be cuffed behind their back hogtied hobbled anything of that nature um we are not going to place a person who's in cuffs in soft restraints in lieu of handcuffs uh, at the request of any arresting officer what they can do which i think actually kind of goes against your handcuffing policy is apd officer will move the cuffs to the front of the patient and then the officer will a or a officer will ride in with the ambulance crew to the ed um i know i think that we've been told in the past where an officer will say oh our policy says we cannot put the cuffs in front 
we require that for a, tra- a patient who's in custody, who's being transported. And at no point will we have our crews without an officer. And at no point will we have a patient without an officer who is handcuffed. And that's the transport policy and the restraint policy changed a while back. Um, and in my mind, it went from very permissive to more strict. Um, and so it does say that we're supposed to handcuff people in the back, but there's a ton of exceptions in there. And the big one is uh, basically physical disability. And in my mind, uh, the rational officer in that case should do what you guys want. They're, you're the you're the transporting entity or Albuquerque ambulances, whoever's doing it, we're going to do what you want. And I think the resistance to move handcuffs comes from, and I've been in the same boat, I've stood in the back of ambulances and thought this to myself, I just fought with this guy. It was not fun. I don't want to get punched in the face again. I'm reluctant to remove the handcuffs. Uh, we see the same thing in jails. We see the same thing at the hospital where we just, that's coming from a, I don't want to get punched in the face again right. uh, kind of mentality. So, you know, as long as you guys are up there with us and are willing to kind of help us restrain arms and keep things kind of under control when we take the handcuffs off, that argument should go away. And if it doesn't, feel free to talk to supervisors because supervisors will come out and, and basically say the same thing of you've got to have them out of handcuffs. It's, it's pretty clear to us now. When I first came on in like 2006, 2007, this was like a huge issue. And I remember thinking, why? This doesn't need to be a huge issue. You guys are the transporting entity. You guys get to pick how, how they go. And just like, you know, I wouldn't want a firefighter telling me, oh, you should have handcuffed this guy this way before putting in your car. I wouldn't want to tell you guys how to transport someone um, based on how you guys do it. So just kind of keep that in mind. It all comes back to whatever probably happened before fire got there to get us freaked out enough that we're just taking those handcuffs. It's like, oh, God, here we go again. Um, and as I kind of alluded earlier, using force at APD right now is kind of opening yourself up to a pretty exhaustive investigation. And we have a lot of SOPs. And it's hard to stay totally in line with every single one of our, you know, 200, 300 operating procedures. So once you open that door of using force, everything else you did on that call is now open for investigation too. And that's not to say the cops are out there doing bad things. They're not. But when you have this many processes to think of on every single scene, every single time, plus you just fought with someone, it's very easy to have kind of human performance come into this. And how many things can you remember at one time? while you're fighting with someone. Um, and so that, that mentality is totally there. And I know I don't have to, this is like no news to firefighters at all because you guys have seen the change at APD that this has brought um, in terms of kind of our reluctance to engage on things. But that's where it's coming from. It's just this knowing of if I use force on this person, what else are they going to find on this call that I, you know, very minorly did wrong, but is now out there. Right. And I like what you said about calling a supervisor. Our crews are pretty quick to call me and whether I'm able to get on scene or just give them advice over the phone. That's one of the things I do recommend. I said, have you talked to the sergeant? Have you requested one out? Because usually the sergeant does bring a different perspective uh, from what I've seen. And, you know, kind of that reasonable minds prevail where we're going to come to some sort of resolution on this. If, you know, if it requires this guy, like you just said, you're wrestling with somebody for 10 minutes and you're saying, I have to take him out of cuffs. A lot of times, you know, not to say the firefighters are the good guys, but the patient, custody, whoever you want to call it, does act very, you know, civil with us. And where it's not a situation where we're 
necessarily having to go to restraints right away. In the event that the person does become, uh, or there is a need to be restrained, our guideline is pretty pretty specific on what's we have to do. It's provider safety and to initiate patient care. And if we can't have those two things um, with a flailing patient, then um, absolutely we will go to soft restraints or chemical restraint. So it's just never that in lieu of handcuffs kind of thing. The one other thing that I did want to discuss a little bit too with their handcuff policy is um, back to the, the site calls, the special order that we had for behavioral health transport. So when we, when we wrote that, when we helped APD write that special order a couple of years ago, that's the special order that dictates that APD will transport behavioral health patients um, unless there is extenuating medical issues going on. So, and we, we kind of were specific in it. It was more serious medical issues. That way it wasn't psychotic and I have a a broken toe or something. Um, that's probably a bad example, but but we tried to be specific there. Um, but something that I just want everybody to think about, all of our firefighters to think about on these specific ones is when APD does request us um, and we get on scene that uh, think about the, the two different modes of transport here. So regardless of what the medical complaint was to get us there on scene, um, think about, you know, somebody that's feeling suicidal and the optics of that person being transported in the back of a police car handcuffed or not, um, the optics of that versus somebody that's called for help um, feeling suicidal and being transported in the back of an ambulance. And so um, we encourage, obviously, APD to follow the special order and, you know, use their best judgment on on transporting people that are within their capabilities. But when they do call us, um, you know, there are occasions where we, we kind of bring up the MOU and then we start to kind of get into disagreements with APD on who should be transporting. And I just really want to encourage all of our firefighters to remember that we should really look at the scene kind of globally and make a good decision to help that patient that did call for help that day. And we will always support um, we will always support your decision making um, when you look at it like kind of globally and what's best for the patient. Um, and if there are issues, you know, where uh, there's disagreements between us and APD on scene, whether it's on a transport or the special order or any other reason, the handcuffing, um, we just encourage you to make the best decision, help the patient make the best decision, contact the consortium if needed. And if you have a disagreement with APD, we're encouraging everybody, try to bring it up with them on scene in a professional way uh, to try to come to some type of agreement. And then at the end of the day, do what's best for the patient. And if you need to put it into the appropriate quality assurance process after the fact, we can go back and look at it and try to reach out to the specific APD officer. If they were, you know, if they were not following the special order correctly, we can try to reach out and make some changes at kind of the ground level there. But what we don't want to happen is this turning into this long drug drug out scene that is not good for the patient. And one thing that just hit me just now, so I'm sure a lot of you kind of heard that Senate Bill 8 passed, which is basically mandating law enforcement to wear body cameras. One of the things in that new law is APD now has to basically record everything all the time, forever, no matter what. To put it bluntly, 
basically, if there's another human around or there could be another human around, we're recording. So, you know, just for fire's kind of reference, do not expect APD to ever turn their camera off now because at this point, state law requires us to record everything. So, and you guys are going to see it. There's going to be a ton of hot mic moments in other departments and they're going to be all over the news because APD went through that. When we went to body cameras, we said all kinds of stupid things in front of people and we recorded ourselves doing that. So just, you know, keep an eye on what you say. Be very careful because at this point, if a cop's around and you're on a scene, they're recording. They're going to be recording. Those recordings don't go anywhere for 120 days if there's no charges, but those, those recordings can last forever um, if there are. So chances are if we have somebody in custody... Just assume that whatever you said is now perpetually part of the record if this goes to court or if they sue later on. The statute of limitations is very long in New Mexico for different kinds of crimes, but just assume everything that you're saying around a police officer is now captured forever. And I completely forgot to, to bring this up earlier, but this I just want to make sure you guys are protected too. We can't turn our cameras off anymore. We can't mute our cameras anymore. It's everything is captured. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think that's an important thing um, for our guys to know. And just to keep you guys up at night, this went live September 20th. So if you're already screwed, you're already screwed. But just don't screw yourselves anymore. I just always assumed that we were being recorded by everybody and anyone on scene. Even vehicles driving by seem like they have a camera out the the windows. And if you do the right thing and you say, you know, and you're professional, then it, you know. It doesn't matter what they're capturing on camera. Well, I think that pretty much concludes uh, today's podcast. Um, I know we touched on a lot of topics and um, kind of how we're dealing with PD across the board and how PD deals with us. The chief said it a couple times. and I'll say it a couple more times. Um, call your 7-8. Uh, call your consortium doc. You know, there's just these, when dealing with the 25s or dealing with patients in, or people in custody who are patients or whether or not they are a patient, uh, these are these are tough calls sometimes. I wish they could all be uh, the same, but it seems like they're very dynamic. I think that concludes today's uh, AFR podcast. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, Lieutenant Dietzel. Thanks, Chief Jaramillo. And um, everybody hopefully enjoy it, and uh, we'll see you next time.